0: Welcome to the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Today's podcast is a special crossover episode between the forum's regular podcast series and its second series, Neither Free Nor Fair. I'm James Long, associate professor of political science at the University of Washington, and co-founder of the forum, along with Professor Victor Minaldo, one of today's guests. Hello, Victor. How's it going? Thanks. Good. We also have Mark Smith, professor of political science, forum Mm -hmm. affiliate, and specialist in American politics. Hello, Mark. Hey, James. We wanted to have a crossover episode today that will post to both podcast series to discuss the presidential debates, both what we've seen thus far and what we may or may not expect for the remaining debates in the campaign. And I thought this topic would be relevant for both podcasts for for a couple of reasons. First, the debate last Tuesday was relevant for election security because that was one of the six topics decided on by the moderator, Chris Wallace, and debated by both candidates. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, of course, have very different ideas about securing the election. And given that election integrity is now a dimension along which voters may want to support one candidate over the other, it seemed important to have that out there. Second, I thought the debate itself to say nothing of the reaction in the media related to many of the topics in the other podcasts discussed at length by Victor, Mark, myself, and others about the importance of free speech and deliberation to democracy. But given the president's behavior at the debate, you had what seemed to be two sets of people calling for the cancellation of the remaining debates. Supporters of the president who thought he performed terribly were calling for him to pull out of the remaining debate so as not to lose again. And many supporters of Biden as well as some pundits were saying that the debate itself harmed American democracy and therefore the remaining ones should be canceled. I find both perspectives very problematic and rather bizarre. Um, First, because you don't back out of debates simply because you lost one, and debates are meant to be healthy for democracy, not undermine them. Now, of course, there's been a third reason floated to cancel the remaining debates, because the last one may have in fact been a super spreader event for COVID. Uh, We aren't sure yet how many members of the president's entourage may have been infected last Tuesday, but there are basic precautions that could be taken in any event to still hold the remaining debates. Uh, That were ignored in the first debate, including potentially doing them remotely. And in fact, the Commission on Presidential Debates has decided to go ahead with the Vice Presidential Debates this week with uh, additional uh, safeguards uh, there. Um, But I'm curious what you guys think. And uh, Mark, maybe we'll start with you. What, What is the sort of role of debates in American elections and in campaigns and do debates matter? And if so, why and how?
1: Sure, uh, there's a, many possible takes on this. I, I will just start with one take that I that I find somewhat annoying because I, I think it's just very narrow in in, uh, in thinking. And that's to say, well, if you look at debates, um, they don't seem to, to move the needle on who people are supporting and whoever you were supporting going into the debate, the overwhelming majority of time, that's who you're supporting coming out of the debate. And then the undecideds, to the extent we have those sorts of people left, um, you know, they might split roughly evenly. So some people will then say, ah, you know, what what, what does it matter? The debates don't, don't really change people's ultimate votes. And, and I would just say, even if a debate happens and everyone continues to support the same candidate they were supporting going into the debate, and, and by the way, I actually don't even grant that assumption, certainly not across many different debates, across many different elections, but even if you were to grant that assumption, the debate can still matter a lot in affecting candidate behavior. Because the debates are really the only place where the candidates come together on the same stage, and where if you if you're a candidate and you know that there will eventually be debates, you will know that your your opponent or opponents will eventually have the chance to to challenge you, and you might take a certain stand knowing that you know you have full control over your communication, you can only grant interviews to whoever you want to grant them to, you have control over your your media buys and so on, your advertising, and that might lead you to say certain certain things. But if you know that there will come a day where you have to share the stage with someone who is equally capable as you and can press against your claims, that might actually temper what you have to say. And it's, in effect, kind of an accountability measure. So I'm I'm really not a fan of the thinking that debates don't matter because they don't, quote, change votes. I think that point is actually wrong. They do sometimes change votes. But even if they don't, debates the can still have an important role in, in candidate behavior. They can also matter... Just in kind of showing um, engagement, we have a real problem in, in this country of people, you know, not wanting to talk to even some of their family members or friends who are now, you know, in, in different parties and, and so on. And if even at the highest level, candidates of different parties can't even come together to have a conversation or, or some kind of. Uh, you know, event slash debate, that, that's a bad signal for the rest of, of society. And then a, th- a third thing I would point to is you've got debates as, a, as a, in a sense, kind of focusing events, where um, those of us who are professional political scientists, we pay a lot of attention, and maybe they don't matter that much for us. And there's also a segment of, of the electorate, the people who are on Twitter, the people who are you know, reading political news, okay, they already know a lot. They don't necessarily need the debates, but there's a ton of people out there who really don't pay much attention during the very long campaigns we have in this country. They really get locked in during the run up to the election in the last month. And it's the debates that help generate some of that attention and energy that then in turn gets people to start focusing more on the, on the campaign. So we can't allow the fact that you know, Twitter users are don't really need the debates. Okay, fine, they don't really need the debates. But for people with much lower levels of political attention, they do need the debates. The debates help to attract their attention to the election. And thus, they have that important function. Once again, regardless of whether watching the debate or hearing about the debate actually changes anybody's
0: mind. And Mark, one idea I had on your second point is that during primaries, it, it seems to me that one of the things that people watching a primary explicitly decide uh, uh, along, a, a dimension that they decide along, is thinking about, for instance, in the last Democratic primary, who among these candidates that I'm looking at will be the one to debate Donald Trump, and, th- and that that's an explicit way that people frame their choice during the primaries about the candidates they want, is that who is ultimately going to be able to sit on the same stage with the incumbent candidate or the, the party's other candidate to debate them
1: yeah I agree with that 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 could be part of the the calculation where if you do have an incumbent president, everybody in the other party knows throughout I'm not just choosing a candidate in the abstract I'm choosing a candidate to go up against this particular opponent, and that might actually affect your your thinking about who would you would you would support and that matters for both the formal debate stage but also just what kind of campaign would they run um what kind of groups would they appeal to in the U.S. context? Which states might they be popular in? And all those other kinds of, of calculations come, in, come into play. So, um, yeah, I agree with you that the, the debates can matter in uh, people's thinking during primaries. So, you know, uh, and, and I bet if we sat here, we could probably come up with some other ways that the, the debates matter, too, beyond just did they change anybody's uh, votes? So I would just urge us against uh, the narrow perspective of, you know, do they change votes and to think about debates as part of a long sequence of events that affect voters, how they focus on the campaign, as well as, as candidate behavior long before the debate is actually held.
0: I have a question, which is uh, for either of you, which is wh- why do you think the members of the media and members of both campaigns were so glib as to suggest the cancellation of the remaining debates?
1: Sure, I'll, I'll take that first. I think there's a, a certain kind of, of person uh, especially if you are, you know, a quote pundit, where you basically show your sophistication by trashing the system in, that you observe, and you say, you know, oh, this debate didn't accomplish anything. It was just, you know, Trump talking over Biden, Biden fighting to, to try to get in. A lot of insults, insults hurled both directions. You know, I'm above that. I'm. I, I need. I need no part of that. And and to just. Uh, you know, kind of show your sophistication by saying this is a this is a, a travesty of of democracy. I just say I'll say I'm not I'm not s- sympathetic to that view. Um, in part because, okay, watch the debate wasn't necessarily a pleasant experience. But this is what we have right now. So trying to to run away from it and say, well, you know, let's not have another debate because it was a very uncivil exchange. Okay, it was a very uncivil exchange. Do you think that the rest of the campaign has been civil? Do you think that what people post on Facebook is, is, is civil? Do you think that the whole discourse we have in this country is, is civil? So if you just yank the debates out of that, I don't see how you improve any, any of the other things. Um, if anything, I think you might make them worse because you get a lower levels of, of candidate engagement and you can, you know, linking back to our, our, our earlier discussion, take stands knowing you'll never be challenged on them by, by the other person, at least not while sharing a stage with them. So just the notion that the, the debate was uncivil, therefore we shouldn't have any more of them. That just doesn't make much sense to me.
0: I completely agree. I mean, the, the having of the debate is what is in service to democracy. The particular contours of anybody's behavior during that debate has nothing to do with democracy. And if these are the candidates, then these are the candidates we face and we should air this out and, and have people decide. Victor, what do you think?
2: Well, I think what Mark said makes a whole lot of sense in that if you're a pundit or a a journalist, a so-called expert, maybe that is the way you signal your bona fides, right? As a guardian, I guess, or steward of the system, you're there to pass moral judgment on whether the system works according to the way you think it should work, or to signal to your viewers or the audience that there is something off or that certain norms have been trespassed against that... The thing is, though, we don't really need gatekeepers to tell us that. Everybody who watched the debate clearly observed that there were norms that were transgressed in terms of civility and the way that debates had taken place before. So maybe there's a little bit of insecurity that the pundits feel sometimes that maybe they're not as important or needed when things are so obvious, in fact. And so then they go overboard. So that's just ruminating on what Mark said. I think that was a really good theory. In terms of like why a partisan would want the debate canceled, here's just some speculation on the fly. If you're in Biden's camp, why doesn't he just cash in his winnings now? Because what it seems to me that if the needle was moved, and Mark could correct me if I'm wrong, it was in Biden's direction if you look at some of the polling after the debate. So cash in your winnings and go home while you're still ahead, right? If you're a Trump supporter, well, maybe The next debate will be even a bigger train wreck. And therefore, why expose your candidate to that risk for him to come across even worse than he did, right? Or what other surprises lurking there somewhere that can come out and and hurt him, right? So there's just some speculation as to why a partisan on either side would want to cancel the debates. It's because um, there isn't a political advantage to having more. And then there's the whole game of chicken, I think, that you see always which is, is the other candidate brave enough to, challenge, uh, to uh, step up and debate my candidate on certain terms? And so there's that whole game about what information you're gleaning about the willingness to go along with the debate according to certain rules uh, uh, that govern the debate, right? But I'd, I'd like to ask Mark, Mark, what do you think about this idea that debates don't matter, but this one did in terms of there's some evidence that it did move the needle in Biden's favor. And so if anything, we should, if you're a Biden supporter, you should want another one. Or if you're a Trump supporter, maybe you you can make up some lost ground by having one. So if anything, this is the one time it seems like there would be a, an instrumental reason to continue the debates, the presidential ones, at least in this cycle.
1: Yeah, uh, I think you're onto something there. From the polling that I've looked at, there are some uh, polling organizations that were in the field both right before and then right after the debate and so you had the you know, same polling firm same methodology in terms of, of how they reach voters and um do their weights for likely voters and all, all the adjustments that have to be made and, and if you look at those um you do see a, a shift in biden's direction of maybe about a, a point or two and um that's a a fairly large you know effect in an electorate where most people are already locked in for who they are so Supporting and it's kind of hard to, to, to move the polls uh, in, in that respect. And so I, I agree with you on that, Victor. And then also in terms of the strategic calculations, my interpretation of what Trump was up to was that they, for, for the last several months, there's been this kind of meme going around that you know Biden's old, he's senile, he's losing it, he you know can't keep his, his he can't keep his thoughts strung together. And you've seen even people like say Joe Rogan pushing this th- this idea. Therefore, if you're if you're Trump. You might be thinking, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm down according to the, even his own internal polls. I, I need to do something to, to shake this up. And if you look at, at past debates, there, there are, of course, a pretty large chunk of people who watch them. But then a ton of people who don't watch them, but then react afterward to whatever clips get spliced up and then re- recirculated. And I think that Trump's strategy was to really try to rattle Biden to, to every time he starts speaking, just interrupt him to get, try to get Biden all flustered so that he would, he would have a, quote, senior moment where he would lose his train of thought. And then you've got that 10 second clip of Biden just looking totally confused. And then that would feed into the narrative that uh, Biden's uh, going senile and he's not up to the job of of being president. I think it was a plausible strategy if that really was a Trump strategy. I think it just didn't work because Biden actually uh, held his cool reasonably well. Um, I think in in a situation where your opponent is continually interrupting you and frankly insulting you, have to do some amount of insulting back or you just end up looking weak so you know he i think he kind of struck the right balance between returning fire and just letting people observe trump in the in the raw and he was always able to kind of get back onto his his train of thought i think there was really only one point where he started saying something and then it didn't go his way and then he had to kind of backtrack and that was where Trump was trying to pin him down, you know, oh, you support the Green New Deal, that's this radical agenda, and, and Biden was trying to say, no, I do not support the Green New Deal, I support the Biden plan, I have my own climate change uh, proposals, and then during the very next exchange, he started off by, by like, talking about how great the Green New Deal was, before, at some point, he kind of worked worked back to say that he was separating himself from the Green New Deal, so there was that one point where he he did look like he um, lost track of what he, what he was saying and thinking. But overall, he, he, he didn't have the, quote, senior moment that I think Trump was looking for. And so the, uh, the chance to have those little clips that would get spliced up and then circulated on social media, it just never emerged from Trump. Even though I think it was a plausible strategy, it just, it just didn't
0: end up working out. Mark, I think one of the things you're talking about that I think is always important with debates is actually getting the candidates on the record about what their policies and ideas are. And I think people have misinterpreted the degree to which that actually did happen in this debate because they think, okay, it was a lot of people talking over each other. And of course, a lot of what Trump said was a lie and Biden wasn't able to get out and, and sort of go into details. Um, however, just sort of narrowly and selfishly, I'm, I, I was very happy to see that election integrity was one of the six topics and then happy to have both candidates on the record, you know, not on the record in a tweet or a campaign ad, but in a nonpartisan uh, debate setting where both of them had to comment on their views about electoral integrity, their views on mail-in ballot. And both candidates had very different views and that came out. And maybe that was the first time that a person saw it, maybe they already knew that they had those views. But to me, that's really, really important um, going into this election that we have a very clear understanding of how these candidates differ on those issues. And you know, Trump said, this is not going to end well, it's a rigged election, it's fraud, it's a sham. He disparage mail-in voting, and Biden was on the record saying that he, you know, he supports mail-in voting and that if he loses fair and square, that he's not going to contest the result. So I'm curious sort of how we think about then the putting on the table of of policy things that, you know, it doesn't need to be a person reading a long policy document for us to see the ways in which candidates differ over policy. It seems to me the debate stage is a really important venue for that to be shown.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. This kind of links back to the, our earlier discussion about you know the pundits having the sophisticated take saying oh, this was really civil. There was candidates getting down in the mud, and there there was no there was no substance. I, I just don't see that. I think they they did say things of substance on policy matters. I, as you mentioned, there was a quite a lot that was said on, on on election security, and there was there was a lot said on other topics. Now, if you were just watching it, it might have been a an unpleasant experience for a lot of people, and then you you have that visceral reaction that kind of dominates your your perspective on the debate, and then you miss out on the fact that over-layered, on top of, of the MUD, they were actually saying things that were relevant to public policy matters of how are we going to be governed and what's your you know, plans going forward. So um, I disagree with the take that there was, quote, no substance in the debate. There, there was substance in there. Now, it may have been hard to kind of necessarily see that during the time, but if you were to say go back and just read the transcripts, you might come away with a very different perspective on these than if you were, were watching it live because during the transcripts you know the, the tone of the voice is off and, and, and you can kind of pause it and slow down your reading if necessary. So there, there is substance there and, and as you say, it's on the record now. and while watching an hour and a half of, of these two guys you know kind of beating each other um, on the head might put you in a, uh, in a spell, if you could just watch say the election security piece by itself, um, there's there's a lot there for us to chew on and and uh, it does force the candidates to go on on the record on some of these important topics.
0: And the other thing is, is it, w- it won't surprise you too or my other colleagues or students to know that I did high school debate, uh, Lincoln Douglas debate, but debates are not just about ideas and policies although they are meant to be about that. They're also about style. They're also about communication. And so to me, Um, you may not have enjoyed the way in which Biden and Trump are interacting with each other, but they were very clear about how they are as individuals and how they, how they communicate their ideas. And to me, that's a very important dimension along which to select a president because personality matters, communication style matters. This is how, you know, this is a a dimension on which people select candidates and that's probably a good thing, but not knowing how they're going to act, you know, not knowing how they're going to behave in the absence of debates, it's just a question mark. So doesn't the style, even if we don't like what we saw, doesn't the style aspect of it matter a great deal to our thinking about candidates?
2: I would say yes to that. I mean, we human beings are animals. And this is a cliche, but body language matters to us. Temperament, these furtive things that come across when you see facial expressions and emotional outbursts and the way somebody carries themselves, and this is valuable information for better or worse. You two probably could speak to this more than I could because um, I'm not as plugged in, but there is a lot of evidence that that stuff does move the needle right on candidates in terms of support or in terms of how you judge a candidate. I don't think constraining artificially constraining the data that matters to humans or again, just to strawman this a bit, have pundits tell us what we should focus on and what we should not is helpful. In this case in particular, Trump is a visceral candidate in that his whole being, whatever he emanates, matters to his approach and how people judge him. And I think to a large extent, this whole outsider rebel shaking things up, populism, to affect change against elites or whatever his message is, is vested in his demeanor and his physicality. This idea that he tries to dominate people or this idea that he's not politically correct and speaks truth to power and isn't afraid to back down from the corrupt elites, uh, according to his message, right? According to the populist message. Because this is so important, therefore, let citizens judge him on those things and let them get the unvarnished, unfiltered look at it during the debates and make well, up their minds. And it seems like what Mark's saying and what other folks are saying that I've read is that it backfired in this case. Well, so now, let, me
0: press you on, let me press you on that, though, because even, even among those people who are saying keep the debates are asking for changes like the moderator's ability to cut off a mic. Um, And I also find that very problematic kind of along what you're saying, but are there, should there be different rules moving forward in the ability of the moderator to control more of the conversation or do you think let the conversation proceed as it's going to proceed?
2: Well, on the one hand, it's okay to iterate because a debate is a learning process. Uh, And I think it is fine to, I don't know about cutting off the mic, maybe if, if both parties agree to that, I think that's fine. In terms of the rules as such, I'm not a stickler for one way or another, and I guess I'm not worried too much that the rules were violated because that itself is information that's helpful to voters, right? Yeah, I agree. Uh, but what I would say is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because things went off the rails or it was uncomfortable or we learned things in, in ways that we didn't expect with the body language and the fact that the cutting Biden off was something that dominated the conversation afterwards, and and then we learn something about Trump and are able to make up our mind about his temperament and character and whatnot, that doesn't mean then, you know, get rid of the debates, as as we've all been saying. It might mean to fine-tune them and to learn, and democracy is an evolutionary process where even the candidates themselves at a particular moment in time might define the parameters of the conversation and the negotiation over the rules. That's fine. But we shouldn't be afraid of that. And we should, in fact, embrace it as part of the democratic experiment. These are unique moments. These are idiosyncratic candidates. The context is different than it has been in the past. So yeah, to have a cookie-cutter expectation that we're going to have the type of dignified debates that probably we've never had anyway, but that we had during uh, Lincoln-Douglas might not make sense, and that might be okay.
0: Mark, do you see any room to change the rules, or do you think it should just be as it was before?
1: Well, there's a debate commission that is formally in, in charge of this, and uh, the candidates have, have agreed to, to, to three debates, one vice-presidential debate, with uh, certain formats and with, with certain rules, so that, that's already been negotiated well in advance. Now they are they are renegotiating some things now, and, and as I understand it for for the vice presidential debate coming up, they've they've changed some of the health and safety uh, protocols. Um, but at, at at this point, anything that that uh, would we to, to change would have to be agreed upon by by both candidates and their representatives. So yeah, it is it is certainly possible to to change those and at least one aspect of. This debate, where it's just two candidates on a, on a stage in a particular format that kind of, frankly, might lend itself more to interrupting. It, it might be a little different, say, in a town hall format or in a, you know a, a roving mic kind of situation. So each each kind of format will lead to a particular potential problems and also potential um, solutions. And so if there's pressure to to change the the debates, say to have the mic cut off, I mean, you you could build that in. And uh, as long as both sides agree to it, there's no reason that couldn't be part of the debates going forward.
0: So one of the one of the things that I, I would say is that my, my view of American politics as someone who does not study it formally is that debates have given us some of our iconic moments in politics. Victor, you were mentioning kind of aggressive behavior. I remember Rick Lazio crossing the stage when he was debating Hillary Clinton in the Senate election in 2000. You know, Al Gore sighing in 2000. Jimmy Carter, sig- or, sorry, uh, Ronald Reagan saying, there you go again to Jimmy Carter in 1980. Uh, Nixon sweating on TV. You know, these things almost become metaphors. George H. W. Bush looking
2: at his looking watch, Looking at his right? watch,
0: yeah, yeah, during the town hall. Um, and, and so I wonder, too, it's like the lasting legacy. I mean, even if it weren't to move the needle in the moment, it seems to sort of set the, a, a tonal aspect of how we even remember these politicians as candidates. Gerald Ford not knowing about Poland during, um, I guess that was what 1976, and these just kind of become the 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 things that people remember in posterity and the things that we look back on. Mark, is that overblowing the degree to which the debates have set this, or are these the moments that basically you know un, you know underscore the things that we already thought about these candidates?
1: I would say probably a little of both. Sometimes, if, if you look back at the coverage of those events as they transpired. That was, in fact, the, uh, the story Like with, with um, President Ford not seeming to recognize the, the Soviet domination of, of Poland. And because that became sort of the iconic moment of that debate, it became part of the conversation in the next few days. And he, in fact, ended up having to issue a clarification saying, um, you know, I, I realize that the Soviets are, are uh, there's a Soviet bloc and Poland is not, is not free. What I was trying to say was, that the Polish people are still free and uh, they, they don't accept the Soviet domination. So the, um, that take on the debate then shaped the, the news coverage and then the, the discussion in the days afterward. And in some ways, it's almost inevitable that little pieces of, of a debate will get picked up um, and, and talked about simply because if a debate goes on for an hour and a half, and you're trying to characterize the debate. You're trying to say, well, what were the highlights of this debate? You can't go back and, and like replay and say like, well, just watch the whole hour and a half. You're gonna pick out something that that somehow is, is supposed to crystallize what was happening. And we say uh, George H.W. Bush looking at, at his watch, that kind of symbolized, frankly, how a lot of people viewed him approaching the, the whole thing where he seemed just a little bit uncomfortable. And frankly, that might've been partly related to the format because if, if I remember correctly, that that was the first year that they used a, a town hall format and you had people from the audience, um, you know, kind of coming up and, and asking questions. And Bush was more of a, you know, patrician sort of a, a person. And that level of kind of, you know, intimacy, that was probably not his natural terrain. Whereas for Bill Clinton, you know, he'd he kind of grown up in the Oprah age and he could walk right into the crowd and talk about, hey, I relate to you, you know, your brother lost your job, you know, your sister is, is on... Uh, um, you know, is, is having trouble with alcohol or, and so on. And he could just sort of speak that that language. So that particular debate format played well into Clinton's strengths, played against Bush's strengths. Bush looking at his watch was just kind of a symbol of that. And then people picked up on that looking at his, his watch afterward to, to, to kind of highlight something about the, the debate as a whole. And so these iconic moments, um, often they were picked up at the time. I, I think the one with like... Uh, with Nixon sweating and, and you know, doing better with people who are listening on the radio as opposed to Kennedy doing better with people talking about it on TV. From what I've, what I've read, that was more of kind of an after the fact reconstruction you know, months later. Um, and that if you look at the, the immediate post debate coverage, that, that actually didn't, didn't show up as, as a main point. So we do, do have to be careful about, sort of once you know the winner of the election, you might then go in back, go back and say, "Aha! Here was the key moment when you know Nixon was sweating and, and Kennedy looked cool and comfortable." So we've got to be on on, on guard against um, you know hindsight bias. But having said that, I do think that we we can point to other cases where certain iconic moments really were talked about at the time, and those did seem to make a difference in how people were viewing the whole event in in the succeeding days.
0: Victor, one uh, thing that kind of angered me in the media's uh, quick judgment of their assessment of the debate and calling for just canceling the future debates was how sort of narrow and narcissistic in the American mind that 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 argument could be made in the sense of like, oh, well, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to democracy. It doesn't matter to America. And, you know, maybe we've taken them for granted. Maybe we've gotten used to them and they've been around for a long time. So we just assume that we should have debates, but if we don't have debates, that's okay. But globally for new democracies and emerging democracies, debates are a big deal. Candidates have not shown up Uh, in Kenya and Afghanistan. There were huge, you know, well-publicized debates, candidates not showing up, that in and of itself being an important um, indication, as well as where candidates are showing up and people really for the first time getting introduced to candidates. But I'm wondering what you can say about kind of the role of debates more generally and, and how important they are to democracies, particularly in developing countries.
2: Actually, at the risk of indulging in hindsight bias, Uh, and I think Mark makes a great point, I would say they're monumental. They're pivotal in some cases. You know, people fighting for democracy will crawl through broken glass sometimes, in a sense, to get a debate on the air, to fight the incumbents to debate at all. Part of plying people from power and transitioning from authoritarianism is having them accept the challengers and having them accept the fact that they are not beneath debating other people and it's a risk for incumbents in a authoritarian regime for sure because it makes them run on their records and their records are usually pretty poor so the stakes are huge the passion over them is intense it's like the same logic you get in the united states in a consolidated democracy but magnified a thousand times because It's a referendum on the incumbents, which are dictators, Um, and for the challenger, it is the opportunity for them to rise to the occasion and to signal to fellow citizens that they can be trusted and that whatever promises the incumbents make to entrench themselves in power, be it Stability or peace or prosperity, you know, the same arguments you hear in the US. But in developing countries, sometimes it means, well, you know, if we're if we lose and and we do allow the transition to take place, we're going to have a civil war where you're killing each other in the streets, or we're going to return to mass starvation, or you know, the class warfare that you feared is going to happen where landlords are taken from their homes and beaten or murdered, right? Uh, It's everything to the extreme degree uh, that you'd see here in terms of arguments back and forth between left and right or between incumbents and challengers. You know, what's interesting about Mexico in 2000, there is evidence, actually, you know, that goes against this conventional understanding that debates don't move the needle, there is evidence that in the Mexican case in 2000, this event, the debates that occurred in the run-up to the July uh, elections, they occurred between March, uh, no, sorry, as early as April, May, and then I think one in July, right before the elections themselves, were so important because they allowed the challengers to have equal footing with the regime incumbents, Mexico had 71 years of single party dictatorship at that point. And Vicente Fox, the eventual winner of a center right opposition party, this was the chance for him to go tete a tete with the incumbent candidate, Francisco Labastida, and to speak not only to him, but to the Mexican people, and to be totally frank about the record of failure that the PRI had amassed to that point, the PRI being this incumbent. Party and La Bastida being the standard bearer of that party. And it was powerful. You know, I watched it myself. Millions and millions of Mexicans tuned in. I think it was the highest rated television program by far in Mexico's history. And he said things to La Bastida that nobody else would have had the courage to say at that point in time. I think knowing that he had the protection of everybody else watching. And he accused La bastida and the Pri of corruption of miring Mexico and poverty of the a terrible governance record uh, of human rights atrocities, things that had been buried under layers and layers of uh, repression and silence for decades and he made La Bastida and the party look small and weak and corrupt and the evidence seems to suggest that la bastida's lead up to that point was reversed due to the three debates of course we could get into you know whether you know the causal inferences there are sound and the like but the stuff i've seen is pretty convincing and just being alive at the time and being in mexico at the time there was this feeling that something changed and the reporting Afterward, change. The medias had less fear about reporting things that had, they were uh, walking on eggshells about before. Uh, La Bastida was on the defensive. The PRI regime in general seemed to be uh, on the ropes. So there was something that really mattered. And the visceral stuff, in terms of the body language, in terms of the optics, I think were half the story. Fox is 6'4, La Bastida was considerably shorter. In this case, Fox took on the role of Trump almost as the outsider. He used a lot of insults and a lot of political theater, so to speak, to make his case. But all things considered, the combination of speaking truth to power, of telling the Mexican people that enough was enough and accusing them in real time, the pre that is, of lies, corruption, deceit, and repression had a powerful impact. And I think Mexicans would have fought tooth and nail and they did actually to get the debates on uh television because there was a lot of heated contentious negotiation that went on between the parties. It wasn't only them two on air that night. There were six political parties contesting the election and therefore six candidates, but they stole the show, but the negotiations between them in the run up were very heated and at certain time periods, it did seem like the debates would not air because they couldn't come to an agreement. So we've seen this movie before in other parts of the world. And in Mexico's case, I have to say, it was instrumental to the, to the democratic transition. I think it is, that's the case in other parts of the world as well.
0: Victor, one of the things that I think a point that you're making that's subtle, but I think is important and and describes part of my frustration at the willingness of Americans to sort of dispense with debates that easily in this instance is that debates are not just about how voters perceive them, but they're also about granting legitimacy to the system as realized through the competitors in the actual election itself. So that if you think democracy, you know, if you think a country is moving along towards democracy, that requires the competitive parties and that requires the parties to be answerable to each other and those parties to have standing and legitimacy and the debate forum is a place where you see that because they're literally granted space on the stage alongside of you know a party that could be a long dominant dicta- uh, a dictatorial party like the pre in mexico um or even just in early days of democracy um having the incumbent government have to face other politicians and other parties It seems to me that one of the important things in the American context is you have to have a Democrat and Republican on the same stage to understand that we have competitive elections. Yes, we have a two-party system, but that they're both granted standing, that we don't just have a system where the government held by an incumbent is able to make certain kinds of statements or, or not be subject to certain processes or oversight simply because they don't want to be. And then getting, uh, getting rid of debates is a sign of dictatorship. It's a sign of sort of throwing out the, the messy processes of democracy that really matter a great deal.
2: Absolutely. The debates themselves are symbolic in an authoritarian regime about the possibility for democracy. In fact, going back to the Vicente Fox against La Bastida debate in 2000 in Mexico, Fox repeatedly made allusions to South Africa under apartheid and to Germany uh, divided by the Berlin Wall. And he said to the Mexican people, folks in those countries were brave, you can be brave too. And you can have the courage to vote for democracy after 71 years of rule by this single party dictatorship. And so in developing, not developing countries, but in, well, uh, in authoritarian countries that happen happen to be developing countries, There is an underground railroad, almost, of knowledge of what's going on when there are these pivot points towards transitions to democracy. And the Mexican people tuning in that night understood fully what Fox meant. They were aware of what was happening or had happened in 1994 in South Africa. They were aware of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the Eastern European uh, democratic revolutions. And there is a grammar that understands, in authoritarianism, those uh, folks pining for democracy, there's a grammar that understands that the legitimacy and standing of the opposition, of the challengers, is incredibly important for all the reasons you stated, but also to give people the courage that they won't be retaliated against. If you see a strong opposition candidate that's not afraid and is up there on the stage with the incumbent, with equal footing, that might be the little nudge you need to go out to the polls and vote your conscience.
1: I'll just build a little bit on what, what Victor was saying. I think that you have to acknowledge, um, anybody who's paying attention, that in, in, in this country, the things that we've taken for granted a long time, we can no longer take for granted. Um, I think there's a real possibility of, of election-related violence. I think there's a real possibility of, of um, some so, some kind of fraud, at least If if not formal fraud, you know voter suppression on on a grand scale. And by the way, you can often do this through through legal means. Uh, I'll just throw out the example of the uh, governor of Texas, um, Greg Abbott. They have early voting there, and he is using his administrative authority to make it so that there's one drop box in each county. Counties in Texas are pretty big. They have counties that are bigger than Rhode Island. Uh, Or imagine some of the urban counties that have you know. Up to 10, 15 million uh, people in them. Imagine having one place in the entire county where you can go to drop your drop your ballot if you're uh, doing early. That's clearly an, an attempt to just suppress early voting in in general and make it more difficult to people uh, to vote. Um, I think that uh, the president has during the debate itself he called upon his supporters, to, you know, go and watch the polling places, uh, go to these electoral commissions, you know, and. You could imagine a, a big mob massing out outside Trump supporters and, and Biden supporters, and there's a real potential of, of some violence uh, breaking out there and so on. So in this context where a lot of the things we've taken for granted in this country, we can no longer take for granted, one thing that debates do, um, as Victor was saying, is it, it kind of shows um, candidates on, on the same stage and in a way signals at least the possibility of a peaceful transfer of power it's possible that we won't won't have a peaceful transfer of, of power in this country. Um, I, I think it's still highly likely that we will, but I think you have to entertain the possibility that we won't. And if you were to just, just get rid of debates, I think it, it makes those sorts of things even even more problematic. Just putting candidates on the same stage does sort of signal they're playing the same game, they're competing in an electoral system, there's at least the possibility of a peaceful transfer of power. So um, for those, and, and the other reasons we talked about earlier, the debates are crucial, and I think the talk of, of getting rid of them is, is just nonsense.
0: Great. Victor, do you want to wrap up?
2: Actually, I want you to wrap up. If you can speak a bit more to other cases or to just democracy in general, I think you'd be the perfect person to... Yeah, I would say my
0: final point, Mark, is a little bit related to what you just said, which is I think the reason that pe- one of the reasons that people want to cancel the debates is exactly the reason to keep having them. I think... People understandably were very bothered by the potential calls to action and violence made by the president during the debate. I think they were very bothered by the fact that when asked by Chris Wallace and Joe Biden to disavow white supremacist groups, he refused to do so. And so that in a way, I think an honest fear is that continued debates will be a uh, fora uh, for the president to continue to make those sorts of calls to action in ways that again are not controlled by his communication strategists, not controlled by his ability to send out a tweet that happen live in real time. And I think people are, are reasonably and understandably concerned about that. And I think that's a legitimate concern. However, you know, I'll go back to a point that I made at the beginning, which is I, I think it's important to have that on the record. I think it's important for us to see that and for us to know that. So however this turns out, in addition to election fraud, if there is election violence and it was inspired in part by one of the candidates during the debates, I don't think censoring the debate or censoring that type of speech is the right move. I think airing it out, showing it to the voters, having it on the record um, to, for our country to consider as it's making this decision is, is incredibly important and, and every reason to me to continue to have these debates. Victor, do you want to share your final thoughts?
2: I guess quickly, you know, on this podcast and in the UW Political Economy Forum in general, we're always singing the praises of liberalism, debate, free speech, dialogue, civility, and pluralism, all these things. You know, if anything, maybe the debate shows that those principles are atrophying to a certain degree and that the To debaters, they skewed a little bit far from the way you'd want to do this in a perfect world. And the reaction by some to the debate is to look away or to cancel them or to stop debating, period. And to just make up your mind and, and engage in more partisanship or more echo chamber type exchange of ideas rather than hearing the other side out. Now, you brought up really good points. What about when the other side, in this case, President Trump, is patently illiberal? And is saying things that are downright scary, and that are not about respect and mutual tolerance and forbearance and peaceful transition of power. And I don't think there are easy answers for like how we should react to that. This is a uncharted territory, as Mark said or alluded to. Uh, we've taken things for granted, and we can't take take them for granted anymore. But one theory of the case is let's double down on our values, and let's double down on liberalism and the way we've practiced democracy so far, and if there 's an example of a debate that doesn't live up to those standards let 's reimpose them and one way to do that is to fight for more debates, even if they 're ugly and uh, they go off the rails and they 're uncivil, because that itself is informative, and we 've learned something which is we 've got to do better, so we always say this, and I hope we 're right that the more speech is better, more ideas are better, more debates are better, even if um, they're messy and things are said that we might not like but it just seems so odd and maybe we'll have a sequel where we can have an anti-debate advocate come on it just seems so odd to cancel something or to stop doing it just because we're not doing it well we could just do things better i think that's my final view on that
0: i agree well thanks a lot guys for being on today and let's see what happens with the uh, remaining vice presidential debate this week and the and the now scheduled but you know everything is subject to change at this point with COVID and, and calls for the cancellation of debates, the two more debates that will happen in the coming weeks. Thanks, Victor. Thanks, Mark. Thanks.
1: Yeah, thanks. This was fun.